With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book about some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. My guests for this episode are Jim Holstein and Rick Jones, both members of the Sociology Department at Marquette University. They are the co-authors, along with George Kuntz, Jr., of the book, Is There Life After Football? Surviving the NFL, just published in December 2014 by New York University Press. This book is the result of research into the experiences of hundreds of former NFL players, from recent years back to veterans of the 1960s and 70s. Jim and Rick discuss, first of all, how the NFL is a bubble of privilege, where players' needs are met by their teams, allowing them to focus all of their attention, energy, and time on football. But, as we learn, when players leave that bubble, in most cases unwillingly, they find themselves unprepared for life in the real world. In many cases, young men in their late 20s and early 30s leave the league without sustainable financial planning, with no skills training other than in playing football, and with an inability to even interact with people other than teammates and coaches. The result is often psychological struggle and social isolation, not to mention the physical damage brought by years of football. Yet, as we hear in the interview, these former players insist that they would do it all again. The book, Is There Life After Football, is a revealing and readable look into the day-to-day workings of America's most popular sport, as well as a troubling account of the toll that sport takes on more than the bodies of its players. Here's my interview with Jim Holstein and Rick Jones. This week's guests on New Books and Sports are Rick Jones and Jim Holstein. So, Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. And Jim, welcome to New Books and Sports. We're happy to be here. So to start the podcast, we typically have a few words of introduction uh, about the guests. So I'll ask uh, each of you in turn to uh, tell us a bit about your background, your, your research interests. And uh, I guess it would be appropriate to have you say something about, uh, about your interests in, in football. So uh, Rick, would you like to go first? 
Uh, sure. Um, I'm a professor of sociology at Marquette University. Um, I, I teach a, a sociology of sport class, as, and that's kind of how I got involved in uh, this line of research. Ordinarily, I do research on prison inmates and the challenges they have of, at reentering society and um, I suppose ironically uh, in the last chapter we do make some sort of mm -hmm. connection between the lives of NFL players within the game uh, and the experiences of uh, prison inmates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jim? I'm also a sociologist at Marquette. Um, my interest in football is mostly as a sports fan, although years and years ago I did publish one an article on um, – actually, it was on football and mental health. Mm -hmm. But since then, it's my interest has mostly been generated by just being a sports fan in general. And this was an opportunity to, uh, to get to bring some, some of the uh, things that I've always liked to do into the professional arena with me. And we should say a word as well at the start about the third co-author of the book who couldn't join us today, uh, but he he was really the key figure in the genesis of the book. So uh, could you say a word about uh, uh, George Kuntz and his role in the development of this project? Yeah, um, well, nearly a decade ago, um, George was the director of player director of player development. During his time there, he was connected to the president of the Packers, who was, happened to be on the board of directors of Marquette. And George was interested in pursuing a, a, a graduate degree, and he was interested in doing some research on, on football. Uh, and so we got paired up only because I was teaching a sociology of sport class. He came to talk to me about some of his uh, ideas or interests, and um, that's where it all began. And we should say, too, that George played, was it nine years, ten years in the NFL? I believe it was nine years he played the first eight. I think it was the first eight for the Packers, and he spent one year in Seattle where he was uh, even in his – Declining days, he was starting linebacker for the full season there. Okay, so he he was a linebacker. He played in two Super Bowls, won one Super Bowl with the uh, with the Packers. So um, so this project really began out of out of his research and in coming to you both. And uh, um, I'll ask at the start about about the research that that George did initially, and then the three of you continued. Can you can you talk about? Uh, your sources, and, and in particular about the re the interviews that are at the core of this study. Okay, well, in the beginning, uh, George's dissertation was uh, primarily about role transitions of NFL players, both into football and out of football. Um, and so he created a, a, a small kind of uh, snowball sample of um, uh, former NFL players, that was actually the the beginning of the project, and it took him a number of years, of course, to uh, collect the data, uh, analyze it, complete his uh, PhD. And once that was over, then we explored the idea of uh, expanding the project to include a much larger sample of players. And I can let Jim talk a little bit more about the expansion of the project beyond George's dissertation. 
Yeah, well, as, as any sports fan knows, who's who is more often interviewed, more frequently interviewed than ball players? And there's just a wealth of data, if you will, that's constantly available, especially now online. And so, in addition to the interviews that have been that George conducted and that Rick and I participated in to a limited extent along the way. We've drawn upon literally thousands of pages of interviews that have that are public access interviews where we can explore some of the same issues that we've seen in in the project that George started, looking to be be um, careful not to just take promiscuously off the internet anything that's said, but to look at the sources, to look for corroboration, much as a good journalist might do. In order to expand um, what we have from George's initial interviews into a much, much, much larger data set, and what we have here then is is a core that the core of the book follows issues that often have come up in George's playing career itself. We use George as a touchstone to many of the issues. Not that he's a, an exemplar of everything, and not that he's certainly a great example of how to succeed in all instances, but. What George went through and what he we learned from speaking to all of these players was that there are a, there's a set of issues that come up in players' lives when they're leaving the game that um, that are common that are recurrent and that the general public often isn't very well very well informed about and that's where we got interested in trying to enrich our understanding of life after football. Well, let's look at the book and, and uh, see what you discovered uh, in the course of this research. So um, even though the book focuses on life after a career in, in professional football, the first two chapters, uh, going back to George's original research, the first two chapters discuss players' experiences in reaching the NFL and then playing in the league. And I, and I want to ask you in particular about your first chapter, which describes the path to pro football. And in that chapter, you use two contradictory terms to describe the paths of, of aspiring players, that these young players, on the one hand, are pursuing a dream, but that they're also getting onto a conveyor belt. So can you talk about that, that contrast of the dream and the conveyor belt of, uh, uh, of high-level college football and then moving into the pros? Yeah, well, we certainly hear from almost every player that we interviewed, that they did dream of having a, a, a sports career. Those dreams aren't unique to them. All of us had those sorts of dreams. The difference is these guys had talent, and it was identified relatively early in their lives. And when we talk about the conveyor belt, the conveyor belt is, is a term that was coined by, I believe, um, sports journalist um, William C. Roden from the New York Times, where he talks about, he's talking primarily about young black athletes, but I think it pertains to any young elite athlete along the way, that early on in these guys' lives, they're identified as being special in one fashion or another, and their careers, outsiders, older people, usually adults, start to pull them along into an athletic career that starts when they're 8 or 10 years old. I was just watching on TV this morning. Look, um, LeBron James' son is now being courted and 
given scholarship offers to play basketball at college, and he's 10 years old. We have we we talk about in in the book about any a, a couple of kids who are already being offered scholarships, football scholarships, to programs like Alabama and LSU when they're 12 years old. We see that the kids are put on a fast track, identified as good athletes, and then put on a fast track to pursuing these careers by being dragged into, or, or them not being dragged into, but them willingly wanting to participate in, in peewee football, in AAU teams, in traveling teams, in soccer, and volleyball, and whatever. And they start down this road towards a career when they're when they're mere children and by the time they're in high school they're identified as being elite athletes they put most of their time into cultivating their skills if their parents have the wherewithal they have them in all sorts of camps and traveling teams and elite programs then they start to be courted by college recruiters who imagine if you will imagine what you would be told if you were uh, um, LeBron James' son and what a special person you were. Well, these the, the, the Division One football athlete, when he's recruited, is told from the time he's first identified that he's he's special and that he's uh, that they want him. Imagine again, Lou Saban and um, Nick Saban. I'm sorry, Nick Saban, the, maybe the greatest college football coach of all time sitting down across the table in the living room for, with a 12-year-old and trying to, to convince this 12-year-old to join him in his program. The kid's got to think that he's special. And that conveyor belt picks the kid up and sort of moves him along through. So by the time they get to college, they've, they've committed themselves to a life of athletics. They've committed themselves to a particular vision of themselves. And it's hard to get off when back to the conveyor belt, if they're good enough, it'll carry them right through college and put them on the doorsteps of a professional career. So, uh, Jim, picking up on that, you talk about uh, uh, these young players um, in elementary school or middle school that they're already identified as being special by virtue of their their athletic talent. Um, but something that you talk about in that in that first chapter, and this is something that carries throughout the book is that there's a, a, a dark side you could say to this this special status so can you talk about that well the dark side of being special in in that respect is the expectations that come along with always being treated as different and often as different than other kids age peers we talk about football players entering the bubble somewhere along the line. We talk mainly about the bubble as the life in the NFL, but players are in a bubble from the time they're in high school. George can tell stories about special treatment, and George was not identified as an elite athlete early on. He was not a high, highly recruited high school star, but he was the best player on his high school team, and he can talk about being treated special, getting special perks, getting attention from classmates from young women getting uh, having people overlook some of his academic shortcomings and so that in a way the players don't have to don't have to carry their own weight in many of the dimensions of life that most of us do when they get into into college it's sort of the same thing when you're on scholarship People care about you maintaining your eligibility, perhaps more than they care about you getting an education. And when that's the primary goal, 
um, maybe these magnificent uh, academic support services that are available at almost all Division I universities, maybe the concern is more about getting students into, getting student athletes into courses where they can maintain their eligibility rather than getting them into a, a, a program where they might prepare themselves for life after they're done with college. And so that's kind of the dark side of the specialness. They're they're cultivated from a very early age to become football players. And they don't go through some of the same things that most college students do to become full-fledged adults. There's also a, a another kind of downside uh, to the conveyor belt, and that is as as great athletes, uh, in the beginning, they may play a variety of sports, right? But at some point in time, they're going to start focusing on one. Uh, that usually comes at the either the uh, the request of a coach that says, you need to pick this sport and not play any of these others, uh, or at the, the athlete himself who chooses, if I really want to make it to the top level, I've got to focus only on this one thing. And so what you find is kind of a narrowing of kind of opportunities and options, right? And this can come back to haunt them uh, later on in their lives. Well, let's talk about uh, when they reach the NFL, for those who do. And uh, the title of your chapter on on the life of current players in the NFL is called uh, Inside the Bubble. And I, I think this was George's term, right? The the idea of the NFL as as a bubble. So uh, can you talk about that? How does the, how does the National Football League function as, as a bubble? I hate to refer to the bubble as a total institution, but in many respects, um, what George is talking about is both in the NFL and in college, um, that their whole lives center around the sport that they play, so that everything else is kind of secondary to the football, right? So if we're in Green Bay and you know, we're preparing for the season. Um, I might have my wife or my girlfriend or other family members who are taking care of all my household duties and chores and responsibilities that I'm going to spend from sunup to sundown uh, at the uh, Packers uh, facilities. Uh, in addition, the professional team is going to take care of most of my basic needs. They're going to feed me. They're going to clothe me. You know, they're going to even try to teach me how to fill out a checkbook when I'm a, a rookie player. Um, so this notion of the bubble is that everything is centered on being the best football player that one can be and therefore removing uh, all of the things that would be unrelated to football, but everybody else has to you know, pay attention to or take care of themselves. So picking up with that, with, with looking at the various drawbacks to life in the bubble, one, one that was striking to me that you discuss in the book is, uh, is the wear that players living in the bubble, that that has on relationships with their uh, with their partners, with their wives. And uh, there's a statement in the book, and I think it was from George, that, that NFL teams want their players to get married because it brings an element of stability to their, to their lives. But life in the NFL isn't necessarily good for marriages. Yeah, let me talk about that a little bit. It's, the players believe that it would be a good thing for them to get married because they think that that's one 
one more thing that the team wants them to do. Now, I'm not so sure that the team necessarily says that or imposes that, but that's certainly a belief among the players that it's a sign of stability. Now, imagine, if you will, though, the relationship that the players have with their lives, with, uh, with their wives, with their families and others close to them when they are essentially unavailable for 12 to 14 hours a day where they're tired and and beat up and players are beat up during the season when they're tired and beat up when they are away from the game and they're trying to concentrate on preparing for the game at the end of the week they as rick said earlier they most of the the details of everyday life are turned over to spouses or girlfriends or other family members if you recall um well, just take an example. Brett Favre, when he came to Green Bay, it wasn't long after that that he brought a brother and a friend from Kiln, Mississippi, to come up and live with him. Now, one might think that that's guys bringing their posse along with them just to enjoy a good time. But it's not just that. It's that it's somebody there to help shovel the walks when it snows, to, to shop so that they've got something to eat. It's some people just to take care of one's life and when it comes down to a marriage what we see often and i don't want to i don't want to characterize this as a bunch of bad guys taking advantage of their wives but these relationships are often very one-sided the wife has to also give her life completely over to managing the life of a player and so what we've seen from many inter interviews from with players wives is they're, you know, they've given up quite a bit. And when the players come to the end of their career, wives are often ready to set out and take up their own lives. And that puts players in a very delicate situation where they're feeling at a loss and, and feeling like they need some sympathy for everything they've just lost when the wives are ready to take off running. And they're not all that sympathetic because they're finally getting to do what they need to do after maybe putting in 12 years of taking care of the players' needs. Jim really does hit on it, that uh, wives who, for the most part, are also college-educated, since many of them uh, met their husbands while they were in college, uh, have made significant sacrifices. And so when the end of the career uh, arrives, they really do believe that it's now their time uh, to kind of focus on themselves and, of course, the football players uh, may not be really ready to retire at that point. They're still trying to get back into the game and, and so on. So that creates a, a little bit of turmoil uh, within uh, the husband-wife relationship. Well, let's talk about the end of an NFL career. And uh, speaking as a, as a longtime fan of pro football, this, this was something I had not really been aware of. Uh, that most players' careers do not end with a retirement announcement and a clear break from the league. The end of the average career is, is much more murky and much more drawn out. So, uh, so can you talk about how the average career comes to an end? There may not be an, a, a typical ending to a career, but one of the things that we did discover is that, as, as you just suggested, Bruce, that it's very uncommon for a player to decide he's done to call a press conference and say, I'm retiring, and for that retirement to stick. Just turn your back the pages to Brett Favre's several <laughs> attempts to retire. 
Um, but if you listen closely, when, when players, even when players do want to retire, and it seems to be on their own terms, they're almost always leaving some small door open because maybe an injury will happen. The, the wide receiver will go down later in the season, and then maybe you'll want me back because I know the playbook and I can step right in if I stay in shape. So what happens, what, what the typical ending of a career, may, well, one typical pattern anyway, is that players outlive their usefulness with a particular team or they become too expensive relative to other younger players. And for example, George's career, George um, was a starting linebacker for the Packers. He experienced a couple of injuries and at the end of his last season with the Packers, where he had not had any inkling that his career was coming to an end, they simply didn't. They decided to tell him, tell him they were going in another direction and they weren't going to pick up the last year of his contract. Remembering that in the NFL, no contract is guaranteed. No contract is guaranteed. Some guys get a lot of money up front with, um, with signing bonuses, but... You can be cut at any time. And so when the Packers decided they needed to go in another direction, they simply told George, we don't need your services any longer. He managed to hook up with Seattle at, um, at, at quite a reduced salary, moved himself out to Seattle, played a season out there, left town with no word that he hadn't done well, and simply didn't hear from the Seahawks for several months. He has to call his agent. He has to call his Friends, his coach is back with Seattle, and he only he only hears in a roundabout way that Seattle too is going to go in a different direction. And so here's George Koontz, who is still fully believes that he's a productive starting player in the NFL, who has never been slowly eased out of the picture. He started every game in his last year in Seattle. He's 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 without a job, but nobody tells him that he's he's through. He's washed up. They simply tell him, we're going in a different direction. Stay ready. Maybe we'll give you a call. And that's the problem that many players face, is they don't know that it's over, and they end up spending years staying ready. George spent two, almost three years, thinking, waiting by the phone, that somebody was going to give him a call, and he was going to continue to play. And working out and, and training and so forth. So, so Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's not only working out and training – it is not pursuing any other interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So their focus is still trying to get back into the game uh, rather than moving on and, you know, uh, getting more education or trying to start a new career. And when somebody does, in the case of George, when his wife does tell him it's, it's over, he, uh, he didn't handle it too well. No, I, I think, uh, you know, that tells you a little bit of how... Um, their identities uh, revolve so firmly around this football yeah. thing. And so without any other real interest going on, you know, they just cling to football for as long as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. And it's not until there's uh, until George's wife actually uh, <laughs> points out to him that he can have this kind of turning point. I mean, it wasn't a wonderful turning point. I mean, it's pretty dramatic. Uh, but once he gets past it, then he can start kind of turning the ship in another direction and, and moving forward. 
Uh, let me uh, let me pick up on something you just said there, Rick, where you talked about with with football being all consuming, they don't have the opportunity to develop other interests. Is is that the case? To, and and you don't discuss this in the book, but is is the bubble and and um, the task of preparing for football and living within the bubble of the NFL is it is it so time consuming that even cultivating interests, you know, reading or de- uh, developing an interest in in some other area of life, so let alone pursuing another degree, uh, is even that pushed off to the side. Well, I think that, you know, you actually almost have to step back to college, too, because you can see that, you know, a, 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 college, a, a college scholarship, a full ride to college to play football, uh, provides one the opportunity to get uh, an education. Uh, and, you know, a large percentage of the football players do get college degrees, but we have to be honest, uh, a, a majority of these players are there to play football uh, and that the education oftentimes takes a back, back seat. So uh, getting a degree uh, doesn't not necessarily equate to uh, getting an education or getting a well-rounded education. While some players that have almost seamless uh, exits from football and into another career, um, generally those folks have had an eye to the future, right? They've, they've realized or recognized that football uh, is a short-term profession and they've got a long life to live and so they're thinking in the future. Uh, about and George was actually like that. I mean, he selected a major um, that was in the construction industry. His father worked in in that line of work. Uh, George had worked uh, as a student, you know, in construction. So he was actually, you know, getting in a degree that he thought he could use later on. Uh, but you're right. The in terms of once they get into the bubble in football, the NFL provides all kinds of opportunities for internships, for, you know, picking up college credits if you don't have a degree. But because the players really go all in for the football aspect of it, I think they're in some ways, many of the players are kind of afraid, afraid to take a month off or six, you know, six weeks off uh, from training, you know, to uh, do an internship or or something of that sort. I mean, it's really amazing, uh, you know, the the diversity of uh, opportunities that the and programs that the NFL does provide uh, in terms of uh, uh, career development and things of that sort. And and many players do take advantage of them, but there's another group that uh, that don't take full advantage of the opportunities that are available. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the issues we should discuss is, is money, um, and one of the important points of your book is that uh, the huge contracts that NFL players sign uh, don't necessarily give an accurate picture of their actual financial situations, uh, so of both active and former players. And, and one thing you mentioned earlier is that uh, there is no such thing as a guaranteed contract in the NFL. It's just a series of, of uh, one-year contracts. So uh, can you talk about... Uh, the, the financial situation that, that former players find themselves in at the end of their careers? Well, it's not that they don't make good money for men of their age, but compared to other professional athletes, NFL players are vastly underpaid. They, they, they don't make 
we hear right now, it's almost baseball season. We're hearing about free agency in baseball where people are, fringe players are making several million dollars a year. Less than half the roster in an NFL team is going to make a million dollars a year. And more, more, more players are making, say, less than $700,000 a year than make more than that. And so the wealth of an NFL player is probably exaggerated. The length of his career is uncertain. And so while they are making, compared to the other kids who are going to college with him, they come out of college, and if even the, the low man on the totem pole, the last guy on the roster, is going to make nearly $500,000 if he makes, this, makes the roster, if that only lasts for three and a half years, he hasn't made enough to live on that for the rest of his life. And because of that, even if he hasn't squandered his money, he may not, he won't be set for the rest of his life, and he's going to have to set off on, uh, to support himself just like the rest of us do. And I think that's one of the problems Rick has already alluded to is they get used to the players come into relatively big money. Some of them are extraordinarily big money at a relatively young age. And it, it, it's not that the money runs out, but the career runs out. And they haven't looked far enough down the road to realize that they're going to have to, maybe at the age of 28 or 29, to pick up and do something else. They're not going to make enough to live for the rest of their lives on. That doesn't seem like it should be a tremendous hardship for them. How many 28-year-olds can walk can be walking around with a million dollars, say, in the bank? Now, a million dollars won't last you forever, and you've got to go to work, perhaps. Most 28-year-olds expect that. Problem in the NFL, and something that we've we've called in the book bad benchmarking, is that players think about what they need to do next in terms of what they've already done. And when they think about the next next job that they want to hold, they're not thinking about what's reasonable for a 28 or 30-year-old man with a college degree to be making. They're thinking about how much, how much should I be making relative to what I have always made up to this point. When George, George who did not, he signed a couple of very good contracts. George was a, was a nice middle-of-the-pack player at a time just after free agency hit. So he made some good money. He signed a couple of really good contracts. But when he was done, he was not set for life. You mentioned the stories about George's wife. George, she encouraged him to apply for jobs at Eastern Carolina University, where he was getting a graduate degree and, and, uh, and also working with and around the athletic department. He was offered a job, this is maybe a decade ago now, at, at the same, just about the same salary that an assistant professor of, say, English would make. So it's not a great salary, but it's not, nothing to sneeze at, too. George felt insulted to, that they would offer him so little in the, in the athletic department. His agent, his agent told George to go back and excuse the language, but to tell him to kiss your ass, George. You don't work for that kind of money. Okay, now this is the, the point was, this is a perfectly reasonable in the larger scheme of things salary for a first, a, an entry level position. And he was only 30, 31 years old at the time. But what he was comparing this to, what he was benchmarking this against the million dollars, the million and a half he made in the last couple of years of his career. This is a, a phenomenon that comes up, turns up time after time we hear in interviews of players thinking that something is, 
in a sense, beneath them to take what would be generally considered a pretty good, well-paying job. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago. Remember Robert Parrish, who is a, who's now a Hall of Fame NBA basketball player um, who played with the great Celtic teams of the, the 80s and early 90s. He was uh, terribly upset with some of his former teammates, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale in particular, because they held executive positions in the NBA. They were running teams, and he wanted them to give him a job. Parrish at the time said, that he was just he thought it was just appalling that Bird or McHale couldn't find a position for him. Paris saying, All I need there is a job, a six figure salary, and I'll be perfectly happy. <laughs> All I need is a six figure salary. And unfortunately many of the NFL players think think along those lines too. I once I was making a million. Shall I take a job for forty thousand? That's beneath me. And that that provides that proves to be a big roadblock of looking for another big payday and ignoring other good payday opportunities. All of us, you know, many of us, um, you know, create a lifestyle based on the income that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, I'm a, if I have a million dollar a year salary, then I probably have a million dollar a year lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And not many people want to cut back on that lifestyle when the when the game's over, mm-hmm. and so to provide to try to find another career that's going to allow them to maintain the lifestyle that they're used to, it, that's not very re- realistic for most of these players. Mm-hmm. And something I noted when in talking about moving to their their post career. Uh, professions is uh, there's also a, there's a particular reluctance to go into coaching because of that fact, and you would think that a number of players would want to get back into the bubble of the game, uh, but coaching positions don't pay all that well. Well, as George has pointed out to us, uh, coaches have to work too hard for the <laughs> for the money they make. <laughs> so you know, you know, they're there just as many hours as the football players are, uh, if not more. And they're not making, uh, I mean, the head coach is making a great salary and maybe the top two assistant coaches are. But, you know, I think a typical uh, pro football team has 20 to 22 coaches. And, you know, the assistant to the assistant to the assistant uh, head coach, you know, is is not making a significant amount of money. But they're still putting all that time in. Mm-hmm. You've got to remember that when they're when players are in meetings around training camp or around the practice facility, during those meetings, the lowest paid person in the room is the coach. Mm-hmm. And except for the, as Rick says, except for the offense and defensive coordinators and the head coach, that's almost universally true. And I can't say enough how many times we heard players saying it's just too much work. They players may think that they like coaching and they may dabble in. Um, you know, helping out with the high school team here and there. But when you give them the full responsibility that a high school coach would have, that's a lot of work. Plus, the fact is most high school coaches are also high school teachers, and that's a full-time job. Again, something that players are not not as inclined today to pursue as they might once have been. And so coaching, for the most part, is something NFL players don't avidly pursue. And if you look at the coaching staffs in the NFL – it's not populated with a lot of former NFL players. They're relatively rare. All right, so we can wrap this up. I think one big message is NFL players, when they leave when they leave uh, their careers, 
are not ready for work. They're not ready for the reality of uh, the working environment. And the other thing that struck me is uh, they're not even ready for basic social interactions when they leave the league. Unfortunately, that sometimes is true, that they uh, living in the bubble, living in a, in a cultural milieu, it's extreme, extremely competitive. It's, ext- it's an extremely masculine environment. It's a, a world unlike anything else where camaraderie and loyalty and competitiveness rule the day. And then all of a sudden that goes away. It's a world where that's dominated by big, strong, fast, smart black men. And then they're asked to move into some other sort of environment. And it's, it's not only the big, strong, smart black men who are fish out of water. It's the white guys, too. It's an, it's an environment unlike anything else. You can recall what all the big controversy a year, year and a half ago with Richie Incognito and the Miami Dolphins and how everyone was appalled at, at the, what was going on in the Dolphins locker room and what an ugly scene it must have been. Well, what comes out of that, if you just stepped back two days from when that first, the controversy first broke, we heard player after player both on the Dolphins and other locker rooms saying, well, you know, this sounds bad, but Richie Incognito isn't that bad of a guy. And acting like this and making players put the team first and and making guys put their lives on the line and step forward in these very masculine, macho ways, uh, that's normal. And it's it's an environment that's probably less, players will universally contend that the the, envi- the racial climate of the NFL is something like they see nowhere else in their lives. That things there's a level level playing field there. That race matters, but it doesn't hold you back. That's a kind of in there are situations in various different ways where when a player leaves that environment, when he leaves the bubble, as, as you said, Bruce, um, he's not quite ready to to interact. Or he doesn't. It's not that he doesn't have necessarily the skills, but he's not well practiced in interacting in normal everyday environments. In addition to that, they're all. They also develop a certain sense of entitlement when everything's done for you. You know, there's not a lot of social cost to even many of the public miscues they get involved in. While there's someone that checks the color of their socks before a game to make sure that they're not violating uniform policy and things of that sort. Um, when, when the game's over, you know, they may still feel a certain sense of entitlement or, or glory, but when they're not in the game anymore, all of that goes away. Uh, people don't treat them uh, as special as they used to. The uh, Adlers wrote a very interesting book about college basketball players, and, uh, and they note the challenges that the seniors, you know, during their last year uh, of playing basketball, no, they're no longer the toast of the town. they no longer receiving the favors uh, of the boosters because they're on the way out. Uh, and I think that's one of the, the challenges that uh, former NFL players face. Now, let me ask you, you did talk with players whose careers were in the, in the 60s and the 70s. And uh, did you find, has there been a change in post-career transitions from that era to today? Well, I think that the biggest, 
the, the biggest difference is that uh, if you go back to the 60s and 70s and salaries were so low. I mean, a $10,000 payday was big time uh, in, in the 60s. So two things that we note about them is, one, the degree of athleticism. You know, players were not training year-round to get their bodies in the best possible shape and condition that they possibly can. Um, it was much more typical. The seasons were shorter, uh, and it was much more typical for uh, players to uh, have a job uh, during the off-season, right, to su- uh, supplement their football income. So in some ways, you know, if you're kind of used to either substitute teaching or selling cars or, or whatever you might have been doing in, in the offseason, um, that at least prepared you for when the game was over. I think players in the 60s and 70s were still just as you know, eager to play the game, to extend their careers as long as uh, they could. Um, they certainly enjoyed the life of uh, being a professional athlete. But the reality was is that the money wasn't there. Uh, and so they were forced, you know, to uh, prepare for a life uh, beyond the game. We should ask about um, the physical toll of playing in the NFL, and you do have a chapter on uh, the injuries, uh, the pain that uh, uh, former players have to endure. Uh, you do discuss uh, the recent findings related to brain disease in, in former players. And uh, the one thing I want to ask you is, uh, in, in your interviews and in the research uh, you did, uh, for all of the pain and the and the post career surgeries and now the mounting evidence of of brain disease, uh, did you find many players who have regrets? That's a really interesting thing. Here is almost to a man, the players will now say, "I'm worried about the brain damage thing." Players will almost always say, "Geez, I'm I'm hurting. I need I'm going to need to have this joint replaced or that one." But those same guys. Every single one of them, every single one says, I'd do it all again. And it's as simple as that. They feel that having played the game was worth the price, even if they know. I'm amazed when I talk with George, when I listen to George talking about this. He can, he can list off the seven or eight major surgeries that he's had, his concerns about um, whether or not the, the half dozen concussions that he know he knows he experienced are going to have some lasting impact, but if you ask him or you ask any of his fellow players if they do it again, absolutely. Absolutely, they'd say. You know, Jim and I had the uh, a privilege, you know, uh, of as fanboys, we got to go to uh, <laughs> Packer Alumni Weekend up in Green Bay, and we went to a kind of a coffee hour uh, where there were I think there may have been 10 or 12 players just gathering around in, in the lounge. And the, the, the conversation clearly, <laughs> you know, all began with, hi, how are you doing? They say, fine, everything's going well and so on. But it didn't take very long for the conversation then to turn on knee replacements, uh, surgeries, uh, or the, the the various aches and pains that they were experiencing, and and, and I'll uh, jump in here. I remember that section in the book where you write about this, and but and these are men who are in their forties, 
So these aren't men in their 60s or 70s, correct? Right. So, I, but, you know, again, they talk about it just matter-of-factly. It's, it's just a, it's, for them, it's just a part of life. But I, I would agree with Jim. Um, at least the people that we've talked to and, and researched, they, they, they would do it all again, all over again. And more importantly, many of the players are very concerned about the direction the game is going. You know, the, the NFL is concerned about the health of the players, at least publicly they, they state that. They're making efforts to try to make the game safer. You know, they're changing rules to, uh, to protect defensive players and not using the helmet, uh, as a weapon, uh, and so on. But many of the players do not like the direction that the game's going. You know, real men don't need these protections. And so it's like they're taking the fun out of the game. Uh, they're changing it. Uh, in ways that doesn't uh, suit or, or doesn't fit their understanding of the way the game should be played. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's almost time to uh, to wrap things up. And so to close, I want to ask both of you that uh, you, you, in the course of this research and working with with your, your former student, George Kuntz, who then became your co-author, uh, and and he allowed this, this view into the bubble, uh, what I'll ask you each of you. What did you find most surprising in in the course of this research? Go ahead, Jim. <laughs> um, the most surprising. Well, I think it's one of the things that it, it's a combination of things. It was surprising to me that the players were were so deeply immersed in the game, and they cared about it so much and loved it so much. I. I being a fan, sometimes you get jaded into thinking these are just a bunch of rich guys out to to play the game and as long as they can and, and come away with as much money as they can. Well, that is very important to them, but what they all share in common is a deep passion for the game and, as Rick has said, for the life that goes on in the bubble. Having said that, what surprised me then is how much trouble they have with the relatively mundane things once they leave the game. I'm not surprised that they have health problems, and I'm not, not surprised that they can blow, that some of them blow literally a million dollars. But what surprised me was the way they felt lost and adrift because they didn't have the regimented life where they had, a, had 18 hours of the day scheduled, that they didn't have family lives that they could fall back into to provide some of that structure. That they didn't have um, just the, the rudimentary things that most of us might turn to when feeling like they're, you know, you're lost and, and um, separated from everything you've always known. The players, for example, part of their life, it, there are a lot of very religious guys in the NFL. And religion is a big part of their experience. But they get their religion in the locker room. The religion is brought to them. It's sort of room service religion. They, they have a team chaplain. They have team services. Well, that's all well and good. But what surprised me is when they're done with this, well, then their church community, their congregation also goes away too. And they're left out there without the support systems and without all these the trappings of support that they've had. And it, it was really shocking to me to see how how alone and isolated they actually felt. Yeah, and for me, I mean, I would agree with everything that Jim has said there, Um, but I would take it even a a step further in terms of 
um, the the relationships and social bonds that kind of disappear uh, once they leave the game and at a time when they probably need them the most. You know, when these football players first make the game or, you know, make it in the NFL, they've got everybody, you know, hitting them up for a loan or money. You know, they find cousins and friends that they've never uh, never knew existed before. Um, and then they develop these these deep bonds with players in the locker room, and they all talk about this wonderful camaraderie. Once the, they leave the game, they talk about what they miss the most, you know, is the locker room and that camaraderie. And, and the, what's interesting is, I, you know, I'd wonder how many truly great friends they have that are outside of football um, when they are within that bubble. And when they leave, do they have anyone that they can you know, talk to because when George was sitting at home for two years, two to three years, waiting to get back in the game, he's no longer talking to his boys that are still in the game. You know, he's a little bit embarrassed. You know, they're in, he's not. And so he, you know, fortunately he had his wife who was a rock for him, but it's like he didn't have anyone else. His agent abandoned him. And I think that's what was surprising. You know, when you're growing up surrounded by people and then all of a sudden the game's over and you don't have anyone anymore. Uh, if you're lucky, you've got a good, you know, a wife. You may still have a strong relationship with your your family. But it's those social relationships. Uh, you know, I think that's it surprised me how lacking so many of them were in in, in those relationships. You've been listening to an interview with Jim Holstein and Rick Jones about their book, Is There Life After Football? Surviving the NFL, co-authored with George Kuntz Jr. and published in 2014 by New York University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, biography, popular music, and more. Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subjects you're interested in. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.